Aren't you grateful that God loves you? I can't think of a more sublime statement than that. God loves even me. God loves you. Um, I don't know, several months back, I had one of our men who came to me. In fact, it was John Patterson sitting right back here. And um, John told me about a particular heart that he had, desire that he had, uh, just something that the Lord had so impressed upon his heart that really began resonating with my heart. And it's just a simple statement, God loves you. I think all of us would agree we live in some times where love has grown cold. You, know, you see this, you see evidence of this on social media, you see it in so much of the political conflict and division uh, that has swept across our country. People are polar opposites on polar opposite positions of various issues. And if ever there's been a time where people are at one another's throats, that time is now in our culture. And not just in the culture, but even within the church. People have been at odds with one another over various issues. And yet, what is it that softens the heart but this truth, this gospel truth that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I believe with all of my heart that every single person in High Point, every single person in the world needs to hear the message that God loves them. So much so that God sent his only begotten son to pay the price for their sin. So I want to begin a brand new series of messages this morning, really from the little book of 1 John. So you can go ahead and turn there in your copy of God's Word, 1 John. But I want to preach along this subject, God loves you. And the subject of love, someone has said love as a subject uh, it has been defined more than a thousand times. It's one of those subjects that suffered the death of a thousand qualifications. Um, you think about love as it's such a major topic in movie genre, uh, music, songs that are written. I mean, time would not even permit us to begin listing all of the titles, uh, song lyrics that are devoted to the subject of love. Uh, several years ago, there was a study by the University of Florida that revealed how love and romance figures prominently in today's hit music. And according to the author of this study, proof that true love never dies shows up in the song lyrics of today's generation. And it matches the romantic pantings from songs of their baby boomer parents' youth. This was according to the author who did this study for his master's thesis there at the university uh, in, in sociology. But in this article that I read, what got me was this statement that he made, American culture is in love with love. War may be a national concern today as it was decades ago, but in both eras, it's the subject of love and relationships that dominates pop music. And he points out the fact that the most notable difference between the song lyrics of the 60s and those of today is the emergence of vulgar language in today's songs. 
Many of the words are blatantly provocative, and they would have been considered obscene in the 1960s. But I read that, and I thought, you know, a lot of today's music reveals false ideas all in the name of love. Our society and culture has a hard time defining love. We talk about it, but we don't necessarily know what we mean. We think we do. The Oxford English Dictionary defines love, both in its noun form as well as its verb form. As a noun, love is defined as an intense feeling of deep affection. In its verb form, uh, it's defined as to feel deep affection for someone or to enjoy something very much. To come up with another definition, we could look at Merriam-Webster's dictionary. It defines love as a feeling of strong or constant affection for a person. And to love something is to have a warm attachment to it. So ask someone to define what love is, and they have a hard time coming up with an answer. Maybe that's why the band Foreigner had such a hit in their 1985 song, I Want to Know What Love Is. Or a few years after that, the song, What is Love? I could spend the rest of the morning just mentioning titles like this, song lyric after song lyric that try to define love in terms ranging from the supernatural to the bizarre to the downright perverse. And yet there's something within the mind of humanity that tells us our dictionary definitions come up short. In my research for this series, I I came across an article that was written for Time magazine in which the author presented his case for changing the dictionary's definition of love. He said, it's time to change the meaning of the word love. The word is mostly used according to the first definition given in the dictionary, an intense feeling of deep affection. In other words, love is what one feels. He says, after years spent speaking with couples before, during, and after marriage, and of talking to parents and children struggling with their relationships, I'm convinced of the partiality of this definition. Love should be seen not as a feeling, but as an enacted emotion. To love is to feel and to act lovingly. So in other words, he says love is more than feelings of affection. Love is an action that manifests itself. Now, I'm going to tell you, that's getting closer to the target, but it's still not yet hitting the bullseye. You think of another popular song, you've lost that loving feeling. If love is nothing more than a feeling, then perhaps it could be lost. It's something that comes and goes like the flu. And unfortunately, this is how a lot of people think about love in our generation. It's something to fall into, and as such, it can be fell out of. It's something beyond our control, kind of like being struck by a bolt of lightning. So the world understands love in terms of an emotion, a feeling, even an action. And while all of that is involved, Scripture tells us that love is so much more than that. The Bible shows us that love is an attribute of God. It's the very nature and character of the one in whose image that we've been uniquely made. And let me tell you, that means that he's the one who gives it a definition. 
He's the one who gives it true shape, and he's the one who displays it with perfection. So that's why I want you to go with me to the book of 1 John here in the New Testament, tucked away toward the end of the New Testament. Not the Gospel of John, but the first letter of John. You'll find it right after the books of First and Second Peter. In fact, there are three letters that were written by the Apostle John in addition to his Gospel account, as well as the book of Revelation that we're studying on Wednesday nights which means that John wrote five of the 27 books that we find in the New Testament. Now, the Gospel of John is written with this purpose of providing evidence that Jesus is the Savior. And John writes his Gospel with this intention of winning people to faith in Jesus as Savior. Revelation is written with the purpose of crowning Jesus as the coming King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. But John's letters, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, these are letters written with the purpose of giving assurance to those who trust in him. And so 1 John, in this little book, only consists of five chapters, roughly 105 verses or so. The Apostle John presents this simple, uncomplicated worldview that delineates right from wrong, light versus darkness, Truth versus error, righteousness versus sin, and he distinguishes between the love of God versus the love of the world. In this way, uh, Chuck Swindoll says that John redraws the lines that had begun to fade in the minds of his readers who were beginning to compromise and capitulate in the fog of relativism that was true in their day. So John stands for the truth, but his stand for the truth doesn't neglect love. Love for God, love for one another, this is a major theme of 1 John. And so his epistle teaches us that while it's important to recognize the lines between what's true, what's false, it always must be done in a spirit of love. Now, what I want you to do, just by way of introduction this morning, I want you to look with me at really the heart of what John writes here in 1 John. Go to 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. Now, in the coming weeks, I want to work through this letter in a verse-by-verse fashion, but to just sort of show you the heart of the apostle as he is writing, I want you to see what he says really at the heart of the epistle, beginning there in verse number 7. In fact, these verses here in chapter 4 serve as perhaps the most well-known, frequently referenced verses on the subject of divine love. And again, this is the heart of John's message. Listen to what he says there, beginning with verse 7. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. 
If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. You'll notice in that brief paragraph, at least 10 times, the Apostle John uses this word love. And he's describing the love of God as it's been experienced in the heart of the child of God, as it's been demonstrated through the sacrifice of the Son of God. And so for that reason, I want to speak from this subject this morning, God's amazing love. Because that's exactly what the apostle is describing here in these verses that we've read. Now, just a few things to point out, again, just by way of introduction to this little letter. Notice, first of all, that God's love is something that's declared throughout God's word. Uh, John is declaring God's love there with that first statement in verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. So by the time we get to chapter 4, this is the third time in this little book that John has dealt with this subject of divine love. And one thing that you'll notice as you read 1 John, John writes in a style that's been described as being circular rather than linear. And in this way, his epistles differ from the epistles written by the Apostle Paul. Paul lays out his argument throughout his letters in a linear fashion. That means he'll make a statement, he'll explain that statement, he'll move on to a new subject. Well, the Apostle John, many have described his writings as sort of being like a spiral staircase in which he makes a point, he introduces another subject, and then he comes back to the point that he had previously made. And there are really three main subjects that John keeps coming back to throughout the five chapters of 1 John. Uh, one is that of light. Before he's made this statement that God is love, he makes the statement in chapter 1 that God is light, uh, which simply means God is the source of truth. Uh, he's the one who has revealed truth. And John is writing in his day to combat some ideas that had sort of crept into the churches throughout Asia Minor, ideas that were Gnostic in nature, Gnosticism. There were Gnostic teachers who had come along and were teaching that uh, the body is bad, the spirit is good, uh, that Jesus was not really the Son of God in the flesh. And so these were some false ideas that were confusing many of the believers. And so John is correcting that in his epistle, and he's saying, no, God is light, uh, God is truth, and if anyone doesn't confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who's come in the flesh, this is the very spirit of Antichrist which is at work in the world. Another theme that John mentions is that of life. We have a common life in Christ as those who are believers. We have fellowship with God through what Jesus Christ has done. And then the third theme that John keeps coming back to is this theme of love, uh, which is so emphasized all throughout these five chapters, and in particular, this passage that we're looking at uh, here, beginning with verse number 7. You go back through the 105 verses of the book, you'll discover that John uses this word love no less than 45 times. I mean, in rapid-fire fashion, John keeps emphasizing the subject of God's love. And primarily, he speaks about love in three ways. Uh, there's God's love for us, which he emphasizes, which then results in our love for God, which he emphasizes also. 
but then the love that we have for one another as believers. And John makes the statement that this really serves as a litmus test for whether or not a person is genuinely in the faith. Has the love of God been poured out in their hearts so much so that it results in a genuine and authentic love for their fellow believer? Do we have a love for the local church? Love for one another, this is proof that we've experienced the love of God. So this subject of love is so important to John that he devotes at least three major sections throughout 1 John to this subject. He says in chapter 2 that love is evidence of our fellowship with God as believers. Chapter 2, verse 5, he says, whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God is perfected, brought to completion. He says, by this we may know that we are in him. In chapter 3, John says that love is proof of our sonship, the fact that we've been adopted into the family of God. He says in verse 1 of the third chapter, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. So in this fourth chapter then, John traces the source of this river of love all the way to its divine fountainhead. I thought about this. Last year, Anita and I were in Colorado. We went out last August to Colorado. My favorite part of the trip was Rocky Mountain National Park. And as we came into the park, we, we had a picnic at a picnic area. It was sort of in a valley. And uh, I walked throughout a trail that was in that open valley. And uh, I basically crossed what looked like a creek to me, but I read a plaque that was by the creek that said, just upstream from here is the headwaters of the Colorado River. Now, from where I was standing, it simply looked like a little creek, came up from the, uh, out of the mountain, uh, just up ahead, but it was remarkable to me that here you have the headwaters of this mighty river that flows hundreds and hundreds of miles, uh, even through the vastness of the Grand Canyon. This is what John is doing here in 1 John. He's, he's traced the river of love all the way back to its true source, and he makes this statement. He declares the truth of God's love. Love is from God. That's what he says there in verse number 7. And it's obvious throughout all of his writings in the New Testament that the apostle John was gripped by the truth of God's love. Love is such a prominent theme in what he writes that he's been given this nickname, the apostle of love. If Paul is the apostle of faith and Peter is the apostle of hope, John is the apostle of love because many, if not most of the more familiar passages on the love of God come from John's own pen under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Uh, for example, the most familiar verse in all the Bible comes from the pen of the Apostle John, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. John was the one who wrote about the most intimate moments that Jesus had with his disciples there in the upper room. Where he washes their feet. Where he makes this statement, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And by this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love one for another. It's John who makes that statement. 
1 John 3, 16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Then, of course, there's this passage here in chapter 4, love is from God. God is love. Uh, Throughout his gospel, uh, nowhere does John refer to himself by name, but at least five times he refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, someone says, well, what does that mean? Well, to be clear, he's not saying that Jesus doesn't love the other disciples. This is not an arrogant statement that he's making as if he were the only one that God loved. No, John makes the statement in John chapter 11, Jesus loved Mary, Jesus loved Martha, Jesus loved Lazarus. He makes the statement in John 13 that he loved his own who were in the world. He uses a plural word in John 15 when he quotes Jesus as saying, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved (laughs) y'all, referring to his disciples. So someone says, well, why is it then that John refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved in his gospel? He's not trying to claim for himself love for Jesus while excluding other people from that love. No, there's something else that's going on in the apostle's heart. It's not that Jesus loved him more than anyone else, but it's the simple fact that John is amazed by the fact he can't get over the fact that the Lord loved him. Have you ever just been so caught up with the thought that God loves you, humbled by the fact that despite your weaknesses, despite your failures, in spite of the mess that you've even made in life, Nowhere has God withdrawn his love. So someone has said that this is John's way of saying, my most important identity, it's not my name, but my being loved by Jesus, the Son of God. I like that. What's the most important thing? It's not the name that I was given by my parents. It's not what, others people, what other people say about me. No, it's what God knows about me, whether or not I'm loved by the Lord Jesus Christ. This is my idea. That's what John wants the world to know. I'm loved by the Lord. And this is something that he wants you and me to find our identity in as well. How do you know that? Well, look at what he says there in verse number 7. He refers to believers as those who are beloved. Several times in this letter, as well as several times in just a few verses of 3 John, he's referring to believers as those who are beloved, those who are loved by God, those who are loved by him as an old apostle writing with pastoral concern. And folks, listen, that's what an experience of the love of God will do in your life. It will change a person. You know, when Jesus called his disciples to follow him, Mark chapter 3, I believe it's verse 17, says that the Lord gave John and his brother James a nickname. You know what it was? Boanerges in Greek, but it means sons of thunder. (laughs) Now, a lot of people kind of have this idea when they think about the apostle John simply because he is the apostle of love who writes with such an intimacy And a tenderness about him, a lot of people, especially Renaissance artists, often would come up with sort of this this picture of John and sort of have a soft kind of a person that they would try to portray on the canvas. I don't believe that that's how John was at all. 
Jesus calls him the son of thunder. At one point, he's ready to call down lightning on those who had not received the Lord. So all things considered, the background in his life, here's a guy who, who really is ambitious. Uh, here's a guy who perhaps is not unlike Simon Peter. He's a thinker. But he's going to tell you exactly what he thinks. Here's a bold person. But listen, after spending three and a half years up close and personal with God incarnate, after having been to the empty tomb, after having been indwelt by the Holy Spirit, after years of being molded and shaped into the image and the likeness of his Savior, the Lord Jesus, Here's this bold son of thunder who is now the apostle of love, and he's writing to us with a pastoral concern like a bunch of little spiritual children, and he's saying to us, Beloved, let us love one another because love is from God. And that's a profound truth. Now, that's the declaration of God's love uh, throughout the Scripture, but then notice something else about God's love. God's love is given a definition. God's love is defined by his character. It's declared throughout Scripture, but it's defined by God's own character. Look at what John says here. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Now, that's a remarkable statement. God is is love. What is it that John is saying here? Well, he's just simply calling attention to the fact that it's God who gives love a definition. Love is not something, we're not dependent upon the Oxford Dictionary for a definition of love. We're not dependent upon Merriam-Webster to provide us with an accurate definition of love. We don't rely upon pop music or the movie genre, or Hollywood, uh, or the ideas of culture to tell us what love is and how love should be defined. Because God himself is the one who defines love. John says God is love. He's the one who gives it shape. Love is an attribute of God before it's anything else. True love. There are counterfeit ideas. There are false ideas. And oftentimes, we want to attach these false ideas to God, and what we do, we end up making a God after our own making and liking, and that's the essence of idolatry. It's the very thing that God told his people not to do in the Old Testament. Don't come up with an idea of who you think I am and what you think I'm like and attach those ideas to me and then worship those ideas because it's not me that you're worshiping, God says. It's really yourself. It's your own ideas. It's the idols that you've made for yourself. The world has an idea that says love is God. The world gets this in reverse. John says God is love. The world says love is God. Love is supreme in the minds of people. Or to use a more popular phrase held by many today, love is love. So again, it's a popular idea rooted in human wisdom The world comes up with its own definition, wants to attach that to God, but you can't do that because God is the one who defines love. He's revealed to us what love is in his word and in the person of his son. So God is the one that gives it proper shape. You think about God as a divine being. He's perfect in love. 
He's the fountainhead of all true love. And you look at the context of this statement, God is love, you'll notice that this is a passage that's regarding how we're to behave toward one another. Because verse 7 begins with an imperative, a command. Beloved, let us love one another. It's not an option, it's an obligation. And the rationale that John provides is this, love is from God. God is love, belongs to Him as a divine attribute. And by the way, this is not to minimize his other attributes. God is holy. God is righteous. God is just. And we don't minimize those other attributes. We don't come to God like we would sort of go to the buffet at the Golden Corral, you know. You kind of pick and choose what you want and what suits your taste. You put that on your plate and you reject all the rest. No, God is perfect in love. God is perfect in holiness. God is perfect in terms of his justice. And so 45 times, John uses the word agape to describe the love that he's talking about, the love of God. It's unconditional love. You know, it's amazing that basically agape was pretty much a new term that was coined by Christians in that Greco-Roman culture. And this term agape is the term that is used to describe the love of God. Not eros, which is descriptive of the love of romance, eroticism, that kind of thing. Phileo. Love that one has for his brother or fellow man. Agape. This is unconditional love. It was basically non-existent until New Testament times. But what's remarkable is that this word agape that John uses here, it takes its meaning from the revelation of God in the person of Jesus Christ, which means it's not a form of natural affection, but this is a supernatural love that is a fruit of the Spirit that's produced in a person's life. As you come to God and you experience the love of God uh, through faith in Jesus Christ and a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, the Bible says that God pours out His love in you. And then you're able to love those around you, even those who are your enemies. How else could we love our enemies? Jesus says in Matthew 5 that believers, his disciples are commanded to love their enemies. If love is a feeling, how can I love someone whom I'm at odds with? An enemy who's hating me, who's persecuting me, who's crucifying me. Jesus demonstrates that. Behold him on the cross as he's praying for those who drove the spikes into his hands and into his feet. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. This is divine love, is it not? And that's the kind of love that you've been given, that you've received, the kind of love that's been poured out in you as a believer in Jesus Christ. And by the way, this flies in the face of so much of our human nature because we tend to love conditionally. We tend to love those we consider worthy. But folks, the love of God is not like that. You see unconditional love displayed upon the cross. The love of God, this is love for the utterly unworthy. 
Love that proceeds from the God who loves simply because He is love. God doesn't love you because you are so lovable. He doesn't love you because of who you are. He loves you because of who He is. He is love, according to what the apostle writes here. So God's love, this is, this is uh, declared in His Word. God's love is defined in terms of His own nature and character. Third, quickly, God's love is demonstrated in His Son. Look at verses 9 and 10. John says, in this the love of God was made manifest among us. That word made manifest there means to make it visible, to make it known. He's saying God has made his love visible, tangible, up close and personal. How so? Well, God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. And in this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation. That's a theological word, but it's one of the most important words in Scripture. You know what propitiation means? It means atoning sacrifice. A sacrifice that was made to turn away wrath. That's what propitiation means. It means that through the death of Jesus Christ, the blood of Jesus Christ shed upon the cross, this is what has satisfied the wrath of a holy God. You see, God, by virtue of who he is, he is love, but he is also holy, which means that he's got to meet sin in the fierceness of his wrath. And so here's the quandary. If we are sinners, alienated, separated from this holy God, separated because of our sin, how else could we, how could we come into his presence? How could we have a relationship with him? Listen, God in his infinite wisdom had a redemptive plan. Long before you and I have arrived on the scene, God had so determined to send his son on a mission of love, an errand of mercy. Jesus Christ came and Jesus Christ lived and Jesus Christ died so that the wrath of God would be satisfied. Wow. And John says this is what love is. It's demonstrated through Christ. Feel the weight of that. I mean, this is why Isaac Watts says, were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing and so divine, it demands my soul, my life, and my all. Notice one last thing, and I'll just leave you with this. God's love is displayed by his church. It's declared in his word. It's defined in terms of his character. It's demonstrated in the person of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. But there in verses 11 and 12, John makes this point that the love of God is something to be on display in the lives of the people of God. Beloved, if God so loved us, in other words, if God so loved us in this way, if his love is an unconditional love, if his love is a selfless love, if his love is a sacrificial love, John says we also ought to love one another. And the implication is in this same way. I'm to love my brother and I'm to love my sister in the same way that God has loved me. And John says no one has seen God at any time. But if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. In other words, 
God intends for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ to take that which is invisible and make it visible. Have you ever thought about that? God intends for you and me to give the world a taste of what it means to be loved unconditionally, what it means to be pursued, what it means, what selfless love, sacrificial love. And this goes against the narcissism of our times, does it not? Love may not so much be the issue of our time. It's, it's a false idea of love. Our society is so narcissistic. We're in love with ourselves. And self is enthroned. And I will love you if you meet certain criteria. And so much of this thinking has even crept within the church of Jesus Christ. And beloved, that is not the love of God. Because the love of God is a selfless love. It's a giving love. And this is the kind of love that the Apostle John is calling us to as God's people. Ernest Gordon was a Scotsman, and he fought for the British in World War II, and he spent some time as a POW under the Japanese. But he told his story in a book that was entitled Miracle on the River Kwai. As the story goes, while he was in Malaysia during the height of the war, he was wounded in battle. Rather than surrendering to the Japanese after the fall of Singapore, Ernest Gordon and some of his buddies, they set sail in a small boat. They made it a thousand miles or more only to be captured by the Japanese and sent to build the famous railroad and bridge over the River Kwai. But in the book, Gordon tells the story of how those captured soldiers forced by their Japanese captors, they were forced to labor on the Burma Railroad there in the jungle. And the conditions were so bad that they had degenerated into just brutal and vicious behavior. But one afternoon, there was something remarkable that happened. There was a shovel that was missing. And so the officer in charge became enraged and demanded that the missing shovel be produced or else. Well, when nobody in the squadron budged, the officer in charge got his gun. He threatened to kill all the men there on the spot. It was obvious that he meant what he said. Well, finally, one man stepped forward. The officer put away his gun. He picked up a tool that was nearby and he then proceeded to beat that man to death with that tool, killed him. When it was over, the survivors picked up the bloodied body, carried him with them to the next tool check. But this time, there was no shovel missing because there had been a miscount at the first checkpoint. Word spread like wildfire throughout the camp that an innocent man had been willing to die in order to save the others. And the incident had such a profound effect that the men began to treat one another like brothers from that moment on because sacrificial love always has that transforming effect in a person's life. Jesus said, greater love has no man than this than he would lay down his life for his friends. You want to know who wrote that statement that Jesus said, who wrote it down? It was the Apostle John. Would you stand with me as we pray this morning?
Men and women, the truth that God loves you should be a truth that absolutely melts your heart. The world says love is conditional. Love is a feeling. Love is something that comes. Love is something that goes. But the Apostle John comes along and John says God is love. And John says by this we know love and we have a proper definition of love. That God's own sin, God's own son laid down his life for us. Isn't that just wonderful truth this morning? Every head bowed, every eye closed. If you don't know Jesus, if you don't, if you've never experienced the love of God personally in your life, listen, why not today? In an attitude of repentance and faith, come to Jesus and place your faith and your trust in him. I want you to know that he loves you. God does love you so much so that he gave his son to suffer and die in your place. Lord, thank you for the truth of your love. And Lord, I'm reminded of that passage where you said that in the last days that the love of many would grow cold because lawlessness would abound. The love of many will grow cold. And Lord, surely that's something we're seeing experienced being played out even in society today. But Lord, we praise you for your love. An eternal love, an everlasting love. A selfless and sacrificial love. A love that's been poured out in the hearts of believers. And Lord, may this love be reflected through us to a world that's starving, lost, in darkness. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.